Okay, welcome back. So we are excited to have a, a very dear friend of mine join us today and share a topic that is uh, often swept under the rug and very difficult to really pinpoint. But this, this woman has done an amazing job of bringing this out of the shadows and helping people facing tomorrow uh, feel more confident. So would you mind introducing yourself, please? I would love to. Thank you so much. I am Courageous Fire. And uh, it's fun to say my name because it was actually birthed out of my experience. Give us the date that is frozen in time for you. It stands out as that turning point. I don't know the exact date in December of 2017, but I do know that it was around the beginning of the month. Uh, the entire family, the perpetrator, myself and my two daughters had just come back from yet another sacrificial trip, something that I had already said before we cannot afford, something I had been guilted into doing anyway. Uh, his part of the deal was that he would take care of figuring out how we were going to eat until payday. He found a way to avoid that part of the deal and to somehow make that be my fault. Um, after the huge blow up and he went to the grocery store finally to actually hold up his part of the deal very grudgingly. Uh, and after a very, very uh, severe bout of verbal abuse before, when he went to the store, I sat in the middle of my living room and thought, when he comes back, one of two things are going to happen. Me and the girls are going to pay for this. Or there's going to be a huge uh, apology, romancing, uh, love bombing. And then the whole thing's going to start again. And I don't want this anymore. That was my date that was frozen in time. At that point, I actually called the hotline, got somebody over to the house. They paid for the cab because he had the only vehicle at the store. They paid for the cab and took me and my daughters to shelter where I got to speak to an advocate. And that's when it all started. Now you're mentioning the National D Domestic Violence Hotline. Yes, right? I that's am. The one that you called. Very good. So there was a statistic on there that I think really gets us started well that states nearly half of all women and men in the United States have experienced psychological aggression by an intimate partner in their lifetime. And this is our big topic of the day. This is a, a, uh, a hidden feeling for individuals, this non-physical domestic violence, this non-physical aggression by an intimate partner. This, this is our topic today. So thank you very much for that introduction, Miss Courageous Fire. I appreciate that. Can you tell us a little bit of the difference between the non-physical domestic violence and, and the physical, the one that's easier to see? Absolutely, and I'd be happy to. So the non-physical forms actually are incredibly sneaky. So we're talking about financial abuse, which actually is not necessarily him taking control of all of the money. Sometimes it is him purposefully sabotaging your attempts to be stable economically. So stuff like what happened to me, this is me doing the budget. This is what there is left. Yes, there's a higher balance in the bank account, but those things have already been like, you know, done the uh, automatic debit. It's already pending so this uh, bottom line that I'm giving you on this paper that I wrote out and put in your hand and you can read that says that's it. Somehow we, air quotes, accidentally always go past that point. 
that's financial abuse. So it could look like that as as sneaky and as tricky as that, that always seems like an accident. Or it can be more blatant forms of, I'm going to call you and text you all throughout the day. I'm not going to go to work. You go to work. But while you're at work, I'll do that. You'll get fired. Then we won't have what we need economically. And somehow I'll blame you. Now, this sounds like uh, something that you've brought up to me before, this power and control wheel. Yes. So on the National Center on Domestic and Sexual Violence, there's this power and control wheel. And I'll make sure that it's on the uh, the site for this podcast. But can you tell us a little bit about that power and control wheel? Yes. Um, so it actually helps you. And there's two different wheels, by the way. There's the one that shows you the unhealthy balance. And then there's the one that shows you what it should look like if there's a healthy balance in the relationship. And I don't even remember how I ended up on the unhealthy one, but I was Googling images. I don't even know how I got led to that chain, but I ended up there. And as I'm looking at this power and control wheel, I'm looking at sexual, I'm looking at economical, I'm looking at um, verbal I'm looking at violence, and sometimes we don't realize violence is people breaking things, throwing things, kicking things, slamming things, because it creates fear. And I actually looked at the definition of fear when I was talking to a group of of young girls. I didn't realize fear was an unpleasant feeling. So it doesn't have to be something that you feel terror in that moment. An unpleasant feeling caused by a um, perceived threat of danger, whether it's real or imagined. So someone throwing a bottle of salad dressing, not at you, but at the wall, it breaks, it shatters, the dressing goes all over the room. You imagine a threat of danger to you being that bottle. That's exactly how it was intended. So looking at that power and control wheel helps you to uncover the, the less obvious ones that tell you I'm in an unhealthy relationship. And there are several pieces of this wheel. Like has been mentioned, there's the economic abuse, the minimizing, denying, and blaming, uh, which you have mentioned. Isolation. Yes, thank you for the reminder. Mm-hmm. And then there's coercion and threats, which is a great example of what you had mentioned. But I'm, I'm curious, Courageous, when you had arrived to speak with the advocate, uh-huh. what what was expressed to you? What was the, the initial uh, conversation with this advocate? What did it feel like? Relief. Because you question you know, that we all have that indicator, that healthy indicator mentally that goes off, that tells you something's wrong. But then as logical adults, we look for something more obvious to connect to the feeling. And if we can't connect something to the feeling, we tend to dismiss the feeling. And so listening to the advocate and, and her listening to me actually helped me to understand that even though I didn't have things that seemed obvious to connect to the feeling, my feeling was dead on. And being able to have someone confirm what I had suspicioned was like air. Uh, you had mentioned that you were able to to escape, thankfully, yes. with your children. Yes. Are, are you willing to share a little bit about your, your feelings as a mother regarding uh, your children with you there. Absolutely. So I can share what they felt like as they began to realize what was going on. And then it actually was 
it's at times directed at them. So the first part, amazingly enough, one day we were all at, and, and I and I want to backtrack for just one second and say, I am a, a definite believer. I, I'm a woman who's in love with Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, a lot of times um, abusers will feign spirituality or religion to use that as a form of hold because they realize it is dear to you, so it will strike a chord in you. And for me, that was definitely the case. Uh, so a lot of things were dressed, were dressed up as um, we're doing this because this is what God would want us to do. We're doing this because a wife should submit. Uh, we're doing this. And, and it was often uh, couched in scripture, uh, which also added another level that I had to peel away to realize, wait a minute, no, that's not what that is. And I said that to say, uh, because it's important to this story, um, we were at... <laughs> A, uh, a book and Bible store, supposedly to buy our niece that was coming into the world a Bible for her birthday, because what, how we'd be wonderful grandparents to give her a spiritual gift. My daughter at the time, I believe was 12. Uh, and she kept hanging around this carousel of very, very small little booklets. And she kept trying to pull this one off without me seeing her. She wasn't trying to steal it but she wanted to see the book. I finally got her to tell me what book she was trying to look at. And the book was Domestic Violence. Now this 12 year old girl has been my child that I've called a thinker since she was like three. That's even been my nickname for her at times because she's a very deep thinker. She's quiet and she observes. And as much as she had heard little snatches of me talking about that from time to time, she started connecting the dots before I did. And I think that was her way of wanting to confirm what she was thinking. But she didn't want me. Unfortunately, she'd been around the abuse enough to know that I should be ashamed of what I was experiencing. And that is how deep the level of brainwashing goes. Because even though um, there were parts of it that she experienced isolation, and by the way, she did experience physical abuse uh, couched in correction and spanking. And she was even told at times, I, I don't like you because you remind me of your mother, which is incredibly heavy. Um, so she did her own level of starting to detach from him emotionally for her own safety, which I um, actually disciplined her for because I found it disrespectful to her father because he would speak to her and she wouldn't speak back or he would talk to her and she wouldn't look at him, you know, and so she finally said, I just wanted to see the book because I've heard you talk about it. And I said, well, you know, you're getting older, so I'm going to go ahead and get this book. I'll read it first because I want to make sure it's approaching it in a way that's appropriate for your age. If I feel that it is, we'll reread it together. If I don't, then you and I will talk about what that is. Now, as the wise mother, I really thought I was going to educate her to what this was going to look like. Little did I know that this woman... June Hunt was going to educate me. And there actually is a form of abuse called, um, it's not religious, the name escapes me, but it actually is based on using religion or a person's spiritual beliefs to entrench the feelings of servitude, cowering, um, being quiet, um, and allowing that to happen to you. 
And the girls at times would do their own form of protection of me. My youngest, I noticed, would do a a comical version. So she would try to make everybody laugh. If she saw he was getting angry or agitated, she knew the next thing would be directed at me. So she would try to make jokes or be funny or be entertaining. Um, And she's very artistic. So she would try to dance or she would sing or she would anything she could think of to try to throw him off the track of being angry with me. My um, children at times would just get really clingy when I would come home from work and would say, you know, we just want to be alone with mom. And that was their way of trying to whisk me away from him because usually when I came home, that would ensue. It's, it's amazing how intuitive children are. But as you can understand, they're not meant to be a protector of an adult. So that completely throws off their time as children to be happy-go-lucky, to be carefree, to not think about serious, heavy things and feel responsible for the safety of a grown person. So that was the effect that them watching all of that had on them from that remote perspective. I I am a researcher. If there's something I don't understand, I'm going to dig it out until I get it. And as I started getting little bits and pieces, I realized I need to research my situation. I found narcissism. I realized that that was who I was married to. And I actually saw the, the direct effects of the children. So it was intentional to actually pit them against one another. My youngest was the golden child. And if you look this up, you'll actually see that they assign roles to the people that they want to control. So she was the golden child. My oldest uh, was the scapegoat. So whatever was wrong, it's you. Anytime the girls argued, it was her fault. Um, Anytime there was something going on in the house that shouldn't have happened, the first place that he would stop for blame would be my oldest. And of course, the entire point was to divide because if the family is divided, no one's going to compare notes. No one's ever going to ask, what is weird about this? Uh, I'm glad that you reminded me of the isolation part. My daughters um, just now at 12 and 14 are learning how to interact with children their own age. Just about everything that they wanted to do was classified as a sin. There was some scripture that was twisted into the proof that it was sinful. So movies were wrong. My youngest is still afraid of most movies, including animation. Most movies were wrong. Most music was wrong. Just about any activity, uh, clothing, color, food, was it was all a sin of some sort. And it was the what was allowed was incredibly restricted. Um, even them being homeschooled was him volunteering because I can keep them controlled here if they're at home with me. And I do think it's important for people to understand when you go to a domestic violence shelter, at least from my understanding of this area, the greater Des Moines area, there is not child care. Mm. So you have to have a safety route for your children. And for us, because it was psychological, that proved to be the reason why we actually that night had to turn around and go back home. Because there wasn't anyone who actually understood what we were dealing with at the time. So when I got on the phone and started trying to call people for the girls to go there, everyone was terrified to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Because it was like, well, I don't want him to be mad at me. 
well, I don't want him to think, you know, I don't feel comfortable with that. What if he comes over here? He's, you know, and then, you know, and the girls looked at this room and they thought, I don't want to be here. I want to be at home. And so I really was stuck because I'm not going to stay here and send them back home. So we actually ended up going home that night. So you have to have, and this is part of the reason why people say so often, why did she stay? There's so many levels of help that you need when you're trying to escape. If you don't have a plan for all of those levels, you can't leave yet. So I was blessed that the the, the narcissism actually yielded laziness, which actually meant that I was the only person that had income. So that that was actually kind of helpful for me in this case. Um, So because I was the person that had the income and because the house is in my name, I had some level of control to be able to say, okay, I want this. I don't want that. Right. But there were other levels. For instance, okay, my girls were in homeschool. I was working a full-time job. So what am I going to do with them? Whether it's physical or non-physical, especially whether you're married or not. In my case, I was married, but not every woman is married. But whether you're married or not, if that person, at this point, they're so uh, entwined in your life, they know where everybody that you visit lives. They know all the places you go for hobbies or relaxation or whatever. So people just saying, well, you could just wait till they leave for the day and then just go. Okay. But they know where you are. (laughs) So that's not a solution. So you literally have to be thinking if you have children, what is that going to look like? What are their needs? How can I meet them? And will my friends, well-meaning or not, betray me? And I don't think people understand, especially in non-physical abuse, just how real a threat betrayal from friends is. They look at it as you walking out of a marriage. They look at it as you taking the children away from him. They look at that as bad because up to this point, he looks like a saint. So you trying to get their help is incredibly risky. And the chances are quite likely that you will be betrayed. So I really needed to address that whole, why don't people just leave? It is so not that simple. And I also do want to say um, the whole, well, you could get a, a, a no contact order. Oh, please. Let me please speak on that. I have incredible intuition. And again, I've already mentioned my spiritual beliefs. So I believe in listening when the spirit's talking. I could not make peace, even though the advocate was recommending strongly a no contact order. And because my spirit would not make peace with it, I wouldn't do it. I prayed literally for him to just get up and leave one day, which he did. He literally got up and left and went to his mother, just left in a whole nother state. I'm leaving. Okay. Come to find out when you get a no contact order, you can get a permanent, a a temporary one, which is five days, days. Okay. In order to get the permanent air quotes one, it is one year. That's not permanent. You, that's not. And to get that permanent order, they serve him too. 
He comes to court, and in court, in front of him, you have to explain why you need it. The psychological uh, pressure and and just overwhelming nature of that is almost suffocating. What if you're told no? Now you have revealed in front of him exactly how afraid of him you are. That gives him more power and control over you. And and if it's a narcissistic type of thing, that's exactly what he was looking for. So you've provided that to him in great detail. And now he knows, let's go back to friends. He knows all your friends. He knows where all of them live. And they probably believe him and not you. Where are you going now? So I won't say that you should never get one, but I will say you need to know what you're doing if you're going to get one. You need to have a place that is secret that he does not know, that he cannot find in order for you to be, if that's what you're going to do. In the situation you were in, especially when you look at research with uh, the narcissistic tendencies, that seems to be a very large challenge. But when I, when I say that phrase... People can change. What is your immediate reaction? That it is so unlikely. Change comes from a desire to change. So if I have all the power and I have all the control, what do I want to change? I have exactly what I want. I have no motivation whatsoever to change anything. As a matter of fact, if I see that you want to change... I'm going to try to find some way to get you back under control. So absolutely not. When I started realizing what was going on, there were actual conversations that he and I would have about change. We actually involved a marital therapist who punished the children and um, who forced us to have couples therapy, which meant I'm telling you in front of him all of my feelings, all of my thoughts, all of my fears, like what, what are we doing? So when I say people, when, when I hear that phrase, people can change, it's laughable. And it also angers me because you're putting the responsibility on the victim to help that person yet again. And let's be clear. A lot of times the heart of the person who is being abused is a helper's heart. That's how they got there. And I'm not blaming the victim at all, but I'm saying that is a susceptibility. You know, all he needs is love. All he needs is pure acceptance. All he needs is someone to support his dreams. That's all he needs. No, he needs a lot more than that. And it's not you in a relationship that needs to give it to him. He needs professional help. And yes, if he truly desires change, yes, that's true. People can change, but does he want to? What I would like to try to get to now is you have you have made the choice to to go seek assistance. You have gone home, which I can only imagine what that felt like. Uh, but you've gone home. He has now left, and you are you are now left with your children. And you are left with friends who you've already said and and those around you who you already said may not understand. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a a sense of how those around you reacted in that moment? I can. 
And I, I want to be so um, careful to make sure that I am not demonizing them in any way, because truly, um, I was an unwitting accomplice in the opinions that they formed of him. So because he was really good at his job and I was really good at supporting him, they think he's wonderful, okay, at this point. And so this isn't their fault, but this is what we experienced. Um, uh, so there was a lot of pressure to encourage and, and, and at times even browbeat myself or my daughters into maintaining contact. My research had already shown me that that is absolutely the last thing you want to do in that circumstance. You want to stop all contact because there is a term called hoovering that they do at that point. Oh, I love you. I'm sorry. And they just keep circling with that to wear you down to get you to let them back in. And so they can start where they pick up where they left off. Um, so there was an, uh, uh, um, a crushing pressure to reunite us as though that's what was broken. So there was that challenge. Um, there was also the challenge, of course, right? Their children. That's their father. They miss him. My oldest daughter understood in, internally, she, was, she had picked up that he was abusive, which was her reason for emotionally withdrawing. Because my youngest was the one that he had formed into the golden child, she actually had no idea that this was a bad thing. I mean, there were times where she tried to fix what she thought were arguments between us, but she actually didn't realize he was abusive, like cognitively uh, realized that. And so... For her, he was here one day. We took him to the bus stop the next day. He was gone after that. There was no phone calls. There was nothing. And she felt completely abandoned. So there were, there were nightmares for both of them. There were nightmares for me. There were plenty of flashbacks because I will be very blunt and say, just because he is your spouse does not mean that he's not being sexually abusive. So there were definitely flashbacks of that. I was terrified that he was going to come in the middle of the night and kick the door down. Um, he made sure to, to let me know that he did know martial arts. And at first that used to make me feel safe and feel safe that I had a husband of two girls, you know, a father of two girls and a husband who knew this, but now I'm terrified that he knows this. We didn't have people that we could call and talk to because there was that whole reuniting pressure thing from everywhere. I didn't realize that, that the girls could be alone at their ages. So then I was terrified because all this happened during a uh, winter break. So then I was terrified that I wasn't going to have anything that I could do once I went back to work with my girls, um, them being alone. I mean, it was just, it was just really splintered. It was scary. It was, um, confusing. And, and, and there was this really loud ticking clock in my ear because I felt like everything had to happen right now. Mm -hmm. Does that kind of help with the picture? Absolutely. So now being, we, we are coming up on two years from that December 2017. Mm -hmm. Where are things now? Uh, so uh, my daughters are in, in public school. Um, they are adjusting. As, as well as they possibly can. 
I, I will say that it is a very tricky balance to try to educate your daughters on psychological abuse and not have them hate their father. Because you realize if you hate your parent, that is an actual self-hatred because you stemmed from them. So trying to strike the balance of educating them for their own safety and still encouraging them to be loving, accepting, kind people and to still love their father without making themselves emotionally vulnerable has been, I don't know. I feel like sometimes I've done it pretty well and I feel like other times I've made a hot mess of it. So, I, you know, um, they are trying uh, and I think they're doing a pretty good job of exploring relationships with children their own age. My youngest daughter went to a dance, so I was pretty excited for her having a, a real life kid experience with schoolmates. So we're, we're working through it, you know, continuing to educate the girls on the feelings that they have about each other that, that have animosity, reminding them that those are not their own feelings, that those are contrived and to try to release those and give each other the same grace that they would any other kid in their class. It's been difficult for me to let them go to school. Because he's their father, he has access to Infinite Campus and he knows when they take their bus and he knows where they go to school, even though that those are not things I was planning on sharing. The legal system has been a horrible nemesis in all of this because he didn't hit me or I didn't have pictures of the marks left by him supposedly spanking my children. There was nothing I could do as far as being able to have supervised visitation only. So I have, I have not had to like take them to him or anything like that as far as what we have. But it has been really hard to keep the layers of protection in place. I shouldn't even say hard. It has not been possible to keep the layers of protection in place that research and science show you that you should because I have no legal support for it which is really disappointing, disheartening, troubling, disturbing. And these are things that I fight with every day, not to dwell on. So that has been very hard for me <laughs> uh, because I just go, you know what? Everything that I can do, I'm going to do. And then everything that I can't do, he's going to do. And that's that. And I think the other beautiful thing that came out of, of this tragic situation is the birth of Courageous Fire. Yes. Absolutely. Give us, uh, give us the this woman, courageous fire, <laughs> and, and what her, what what is her mission? What is yes. what is her hope? Thank you. So the woman was birthed out of that. Andrea Haynes uh, was the the married woman that I I used to be. Obviously, Haynes would have been my former husband's last name. I do not want that legacy. You know, so in a divorce, you could have your maiden name back. Um, unfortunately, my maiden name is tied to a man who was sexually abusive. And though he repented of that and did change his life, because it is true that sometimes people do want to change and do change. I didn't want that legacy back either. Um, so that led me to do some research again on meanings of names. And Andrea actually has the name of womanly, but it also has the meaning of courageous. And I looked at the entire tra trajectory of my life cycle. And courageous has been all through it. My middle name um, is actually K, K-A-Y, and it actually means fiery or fire. 
And I was so sure that that made sense in every way. And so that is who I am today. That is the rebirth name. The actual move, that's the woman. The movement, I really want awareness. I don't want any other woman sitting in this asking herself, how come I can't communicate better with him, but I can with everybody else? I don't want a woman doing the whole mental beating up on herself thing that I did for 13 years. I want there to be something that people can look at and say, oh, I know it. I've seen that. Wait, oh, that's me. Okay, now I know. You need the self-identification tools that I didn't have. So that's one part that I want, the awareness. Number two, I want to, and on the website, I, I am building a resource for women to know if it is not physical, because there's a lot, and I'm thankful that there's a lot of awareness out there and tools and agencies that people understand if I'm being physically abused, I can go here. But if it's not physical, people don't know where to go. So I am compiling that resource area so that women will know if this is not physical, these places can do these things for me to help me get out of the immediate situation. And then finally, what I learned myself on healing is, and I am an artist of of several different things. Um, So music, theater, so many different things. And so I started journaling in the middle of the therapeutic part of, of this journey. And I actually started writing letters to different people. And they were the ones with the, with the pivotal things that had happened to me. If they were sitting in front of me in a chair and they couldn't interrupt me, what would I say? And so I wrote these things down and I really thought that so many different people would be the person starting out with my former husband but it wasn't. It was one particular relationship that helped me to identify the vulnerability. What made me susceptible? Because this marriage was not the first time I had been in an unhealthy relationship without even realizing it. There was a pattern. And so there's always a reason why there is a kind of a little back door opening. It's not real big. It's just a little crack. But that is where perpetrators, they they're, they pick up on those. They have trained themselves to spot the crack. And so the journaling allowed me to see where that was. And that allowed me to therapeutically close that gap. And so the healing part is not that you're out of the relationship. That's the immediate danger. You need to close off the susceptibility to perpetrators. And when you identify what it is, then you can therapeutically close it. So there will be groups forming, very small groups of women who have been identified as Either they self-identified or a friend said, hey, I want you to, to, to come and do this. I think it'll help you. But the whole point of, of these small groups, probably only four um, at, at the most, is for them to be able to do their journaling. Once they identify that pivotal person, that pivotal relationship, that pivotal time, they get to have a costume designer design them an empowerment outfit. They get to wear it. They get to have um, a professional lighting person stage this entire thing. There will be an empty chair on that stage for her to read what she is going to say to that chair and imagine that person in it. 
Because the whole thing of the power and control wheel is feeling like you're small and they're big. That whole empty chair exercise that my therapist actually did with me allowed me to finally feel back in the driver's seat in that moment. So recreating that feeling of power again, that feeling of you controlling your situation is really important. So being able to do that with ladies so that they can then get that balance back the other way. And then they can work with their therapist on, okay, now I've identified this. How do we close it? You've shared your story so beautifully and eloquently. But if there is someone listening right now that does say, (sighs) that is me. (sighs) Knowing what you've gone through, what is your immediate advice to them? Call that number. That number is 1-800-799-7233. 1-800-799-7233. They are available 24-7. And honestly, even since he left, there are times that I have called that number. I needed to just have somebody talk to me who uh, would be welcoming, who was comforting, and who would just listen to me. And I will say um, that that is part of actually what you need. If you are out there right now and you're listening, beautiful, I need to tell you that part of what you, the, the healing that begins is just having someone listen to you and value what you are saying. So please call that number. And they are trained, by the way, to stop talking if they know that there's something happening they and they listen very carefully to your background noises to keep you safe uh they will keep the number that you called from and if they need to call you back they will so don't think that they're going to betray you because they will not but they part of what you really need is to have someone listen and value your thoughts and your feelings. And that is um, the healing balm that first started for me was that call of someone not dismissing what I was saying. And speaking of those conversations, if they want to reach out to Courageous Fire, yes, how are they going to get a hold of you? Several ways. So, um, but probably one of the easiest ways to reach me would be to call 515-428-0077. Again, that number is 515-428-0077. There is also a chat feature on the website. It is cfire2019.wixsite.com forward slash move. And there is a chat feature there that you can chat with me on as well. And again, if you feel that you are in immediate danger, call the hotline. Yes. Obviously, Courageous Fire would love to hear from you, but she believes in your safety first. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Now, Courageous Fire, one last thing from you. What would be the call to action that you you have for listeners right now? The biggest thing that I need right now is to get my resources compiled on that website. I would really love for all of the community agencies that are able to offer any help at all to victims of non-physical domestic violence, if you would please uh, go to the website and there's a section called Connection, I do believe is what it's called. Click there and there's actually a form that you can fill out 
that will allow you to give me your information for resources. And the form guides you on what information that I need, but that is my hugest call to action right now that I need those resources on in one spot for those women. Let's get that resource list built up for these women. Courageous Fire, we thank you so much for your willingness to share your personal story. Knowing that it's only two years out, we know that there's so much more that you are, you're working through. So your willingness to share your story with us is so greatly appreciated. But more importantly, your willingness to connect with other women is so valued and important. And we appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you.